No Entrance, 2015. Artist unknown. Steel door, chains, padlock, and neon sign. The electrified red letters flash with an insistent, demanding urgency. A sign that looks like it would be more at home above the entryway of a dive bar, virtually unknown to anyone other than a local of the neighborhood. Those loyal barflies who flock to its beckoning call. But it does not flash above a bar that may or may not have a name. Instead, it flashes on and off, on and off, in the brightly lit gallery of a museum, above a freestanding steel door wrapped in thick chains and barred with a heavy padlock. Enter, it reads. Enter. 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 Is it a challenge? A dare written in neon and contained within glass for any who happen upon it? A call to free this entryway from its iron restraints to see what might await anyone capable of opening the door and stepping across its threshold? It's possible. A key could be found or fitted to the task. Bolt cutters, or something stronger than bolt cutters, could be taken to the chains. This door's unlocking is possible. But to what purpose? You may walk a full circle around the structure. You can see that it will only lead to nowhere. To nothing. To empty space waiting to be occupied. Is it a warning? A beacon of caution against prying into places where eyes were never meant to wander. Some doors are locked for good reason, after all. Sometimes the shutting of a door be it with a gentle click or a ringing slam, is meant to protect the one closing it, or those on the far side, or both. Perhaps the flashing sign beckoning you to enter is a lie, a cruel enticement, an obfuscation, and the chains and lock barring your way are the cold, bitter truth, the remedy against an intoxicating, dangerous promise. For what waits in the unknown? Nothing. And everything. Or is it a display of paradox? Or perhaps irony is the better word for it. A study in irony. A door waiting to be opened, wanting to be opened. The flash of the sign says so over and over again. And yet it is locked up tight, wrapped up like Jacob Marley, heavy with chains. Could it represent that thing? That one object of desire coveted above all others, for which you so desperately yearn, but, for any number of reasons, remains just out of your grasp, separated by nothing more than a few inches of steel set on a hinge designed to swing open, that would open, if not for the interference of the chains and padlock. So close. So far. Do you have any locked doors? Pathways seemingly barred to you? What might open them? What key might you fit to those locks made just for you, and which may have been made by you? What do you think keeps you on the far side of dreams? The Godfrey Estate and Museum's long history has produced a wealth of trivia and fun facts over the years. 
For example, construction first began on the Godfrey in 1921 and was completed three years later. Though when we say completed, we mean when the construction crew finished the official blueprints. New wings, staircases, and occasionally entire buildings continue to materialize and vanish with fairly regular occurrence. Rod Serling was an avid fan and longtime member of the Godfrey Estate and would come to the museum any chance that his busy schedule allowed. On average, upwards of one million people visit the Godfrey every year. On average, approximately 99.99% of those 1 million people safely leave the Godfrey every year. The most lawsuits ever filed against the estate in a single calendar year was 1,323 in 1976. 1976 is also the year with the highest number of guest disappearances on record. There are upwards of 5,000 collection items here at the estate, though the exact number is unknown. As you have already begun to discover, the museum and its sponsor like to keep people on their toes and have a habit of adding to and taking away from the gallery contents at random. Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte, 1884. Georges Seurat, oil on canvas. Undoubtedly the most famous painting in Seurat's body of work, Sunday Afternoon is a masterful example of the pointillism technique. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of tiny dots of color, the barest impression of paint on the canvas, coalescing to create a cohesive and vibrant picture. And what a picture indeed! It is a sunny day in a park along the banks of the Seine. Dozens of Parisians are gathered beneath the ample shade of the well-manicured trees. A number of boats float upon the water in the distance. And yet, for all the various subjects on display, there is an incongruous lack of a sense of motion. A pair of dogs, and even what looks to be a pet monkey frolic in the foreground. A young girl in a white hat and an orange dress runs in the opposite direction of the water's edge. Yet, they are the only ones. They, it seems are the only ones who escaped the pull of whatever trapped those people on the banks of the Seine on that tragic Sunday afternoon. Look at the people's faces. All of them. Look at the blank expressions, the vacant, distant eyes as every last one of the people in the painting stares out at something just beyond the left edge of the frame something just out of your sight, something that Seurat mercifully omitted from his interpretation of this scene. These people transfixed by some unknown thing, knowable only through its devastating effect on those poor souls who merely ventured to this park, on this bank, to enjoy the clear weather of a lovely day. For every last one of the people in this painting save for the frolicking animals and the girl in the orange dress, still remain on the island of La Grande Jatte, even to this very day. The ladies in their finery, the gentlemen in their Sunday best, the workers enjoying a day of respite, even the boats out on the water, all can be found still in these same positions immortalized in Surat's work, 
It is now a park-turned-memorial for those who have never left. Surratt himself was haunted by whatever part he may have inadvertently played in the fate of his subjects. After the fact, he spoke of a strange calling to that spot along the bank of the Seine. He recalled remarking at the unusual focus that so many of the park's visitors held toward the same spot, either on or beyond the water, and of how a voice, dark and unfamiliar, commanded him not to follow their line of sight, only to paint. And paint he did, with a quickening of his pulse at odds with the apparent serenity of the scene. He recalled how, as the painting took shape before him, the world around him slowed until finally, upon the painting's completion, Surratt's subjects had frozen entirely into the poses he'd painted them into. Perhaps you've already seen the painting's real-life counterpart. Perhaps you will one day. But if you do, do not follow their collective gaze. Not unless you want to join them. Thank you for listening to the Godfrey Audio Guide. This episode was written, produced, and performed by Nicole Knudsen, with sound design and editing by James Ferrero. Enjoying your trip to the estate? To keep up with the Godfrey, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Godfrey Guide, or visit our website, posted in the show notes below. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in becoming a sustaining member of the show, make sure to visit our Patreon page patreon.com slash the godfrey audio guide in addition to our various membership tiers you'll also find full episode transcripts for any who wish to read them until next time friends see you back at the museum